Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing better than ever. Better than ever. How are you today, Tim? Wow. I mean, I, I w- only wish I could match that. Uh, <laughs> that, But uh, I'm doing great, Lance, as well. And uh, this episode, I feel, is, is an excellent conversation. We talked to really a new friend, someone we had on these airwaves not too long ago to discuss Maura Murray. And this time we're talking to Douglas McGregor, the GO profiler. We're talking to him about the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. He is such a fascinating individual, and it's all part of the assembly that we are have unintentionally been working on over the past year or so, where we bring on these people that we didn't even know uh, existed and these industries that we didn't know about. For example, we recently met a woman who is a super recognizer, Kelly Hearsey from Super Recognizers International. You and I didn't know that that was something that was a thing, that she can literally look at a picture of somebody from, say, 15 years ago and the sighting of somebody current day and she's got like a like a 99.9% accuracy rate the the highest score ever out of the 6 million applicants for super recognizers international and she's sort of a superhero as is our new friend Doug this uh this gentleman Doug from mcgregorandassociates.com is a geo profiler which um basically means that he can analyze the physical location of a crime or in this case, uh, Brianna's car or Morris' car, and all of the circumstances that go into why that car was there, which is extremely helpful if you're trying to figure out a solution. You you sort of get a sense of the geography and the going-ons, the happenings, working from the inside, being the car, out to where she went to work, where she went to, uh, you know, where, where she went home, where she could have been going. It's it's incredible. Um and uh, yeah, he's he's fascinating, and he sent us a bullet-pointed list of like 14 points, and we tried to address all of them in this episode. I think we did a pretty decent job. I think we did, and I think we really got into some great debates about the case, which uh, really leads to learning things. Uh, so, so I think that was I think it's really helpful. And you can check out Doug's information and his website at McGregorAndAssociates.com. He's also on Twitter at McGregor underscore A-S-S-O-C or 
simply at the Geo Profiler as well. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Welcome to the Crawl Space Podcast, Doug McGregor. How are you today, Doug? I'm great. How are you guys? We can't complain. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're you're uh, joining in from above the uh, on, the on the northern side of the border in Canada. How's everything going up there? To uh, our fine maple syrup making neighbors to the north. Uh, not too bad. We've kind of gone back into uh, modified phase two here in Ottawa, where I'm from. Uh, so a little more like the lockdown, but you know, we're getting through it. Absolutely. And, uh, and we are as well. And, uh, thank you for taking the time out to, uh, to talk to us here. You spoke with us on our other podcast or one of our other podcasts, um, missing Maura Murray just a couple of months ago about Maura Murray and the mysterious disappearance of Maura Murray. So check out that show and that channel. Uh, if you haven't yet heard that one. But uh, Doug, for our audience who is not familiar with what you do, can you give us an explanation? Absolutely. Uh, so I do a couple of different activities. Um, geographic profiling is one of them. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a subset of behavioral profiling or offensive profiling. Uh, the other activity I do is open source intelligence, uh, which includes social media intelligence and geospatial intelligence. And then I have other activities such as, uh, you know, coordinating searches for missing people, uh, which uses kind of both of those um, fields. And then uh, as well as uh, mapping, so crime mapping or uh, just mapping different data sets on, uh, it could be offenders, it could be missing people, unsolved cases. You know what? When you did some work with us on Mora's case, uh, we had talked about the geographic profiling, and I never really heard about that. Uh, you, you know, like very, uh, it, it wasn't very relevant to me. I, I kind of knew it existed, and then I met you, and, and the importance of it really came through when you worked on Mora's case. Uh, a lot of it was because it opens you up to thinking about something that you wouldn't think about if being so close to it, like working on it so much. And we invited you to or asked you to um, look at Brianna's case as well, because that the circumstances I feel in, in Brianna's case are very important in terms of geographic profiling. Would you agree with that, that her case, uh, the way the car was found, distance from the restaurant, uh, is that is that sort of like uh, what you look for when someone's coming to you to solicit your service for geographic profiling? Yeah. So th the more information, the better. And that's just always the case. Uh, you know, with Brianna's case, there's, there's not a lot of, at first glance, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information to go on. You know, she left the black lantern and her car ended up at the old Dutch burn. Uh, home, uh, you know, and I mean, obviously there's, uh, she was places before she was at the Black Lantern and there's other people that are potentially involved, but the, uh, the there are different, you know, um, temporal and spatial elements and environmental elements that you can apply to Brianna's case. So uh, there, there is, a, there's enough information to make, uh, to make inferences on Brianna's case. And how much of Brianna's case had you known before we contacted you? Uh, 
I had known a little bit, you know, I had listened to some of the, you know, the podcasts by your, by the, the ones that, uh, that you guys put out and I had read the, uh, you know, like the Wikipedia pages. I, I think I first was introduced to Brianna's case, uh, through the Maura Murray case. You know, I, uh, I, I listened to your podcast on the Maura Murray case. I read on the Maura Murray case and it kind of, there was always articles that, you know, said, oh, is, you know, is Brianna Maitland potentially connected to this case? And so that kind of led me to reading on her case. What do you, what do you make about that? What do you make about the, uh, the connection between Mora and Brianna or the possible connection there? There are a few very interesting elements there. Uh, well, two, basically. The first one is proximity. Uh, they're relatively close. The other one is, you know, the time frame. They happened pretty close to one another. Uh, and then, you know, after that, you're kind of also getting into the environmental and the spatial element where they're in an area that it, it's not a city. They're not in a city. It's more rural townships, towns. Uh, so there's not a lot of people there. There's not high crime rates. So you're kind of, there's, there's these different aspects that you got to apply and you start saying, okay, there's not a lot of people here. There's not a lot of crime here. And I know there was a drug problem, but I'm talking, you know, major crime, high homicide rates, that kind of thing. You know, they happen pretty close in, in time and space. And you wrote here to us that you believe that the Dutchburn house is likely a vehicle dump site in the case of Brianna. And of course, uh, like Mora, um, Brianna's car was found, um, but no, uh, no person, no uh, young woman. Um, and uh, so wh why do you think that the Dutchburn house was a vehicle dump site in Brianna's case? The Dutchburn house is, you know, it's, it's a location. It's not just a, a tree on the side of the road that a car ran into, like Moore Murray's case. It's a location. It's, it's not far from Montgomery where the Black Lantern Inn was. And, you know, her, her schedule was too unpredictable. Uh, she, you know, she had just began working there. So as been mentioned, uh, on your podcast previously, not many people knew she was working there. Uh, even she did not know the schedule, her schedule getting off work. Uh, so the inference I made was that it was, it was likely a vehicle dump site. I mean, it could have been an accident site as well. I mean, we don't really know how the vehicle ended up the way it did. We really have no idea. You know, it could have been an accident, you know, swerving to miss a deer, bad road conditions. It could have been, you know, run off the road. Um, it could have been a dump site. There's really, we really don't know how the vehicle ended up there. And we'll get to that a, a, a bit later. But uh, it, it appears that the vehicle was left there. And those, the main indicators are not how the vehicle ended up there, uh, but how it was left afterwards the condition it was left in yeah and you make some great points here and um i think it's kind of a matter of was the car driven back that fast uh intentionally to get it stuck onto the dutchburn house or was it uh done in haste and it it just so happened it uh got stuck on the house do you know what I mean? Because it did get did get hung up there. So I think if it was Brianna and she was trying to flee, I don't think she would have been able to dr drive that car out. So what one thing I don't know, and, and Lance, to your point earlier, 
I never wondered about like skid marks or tire marks or or like if the car actually tried to get out from that point or not. We know that some of the doors were left open or at least one of them, maybe two headlights on at that point. So I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I assume that the way the vehicle was stuck was was by accident. Like you mentioned, it could have been haste. It could have been loss of control. Um getting the car off the road quickly. Uh, you know, I did, I did, uh, hear in one of the, in one of your recordings that, um, with one of the guests that there were tracks into the grass that kind of showed how the vehicle backed into the house. But, you know, if if the person had tried to drive away after that, uh, it was a front wheel drive car. So you would have seen kind of the grass dug up at the front wheels and then, you know, other tire tracks, the police would have noticed if the car had tried to brake or stop on the road as well. Because, you know, I mean, it depends on conditions, but in all likelihood, there should have been tire marks on the road. Another car had stopped quickly or had turned quickly or had lost control. Uh, you said that uh, this could um, likely be a dump site. And I just want to clarify in my own head. Uh, this would be an intentional or an unintentional dump site? Because I'm thinking dump site, you know, someone's taking a car, they want to get rid of it, they don't want it to be seen. This is obviously right on the road. People are going to see it. So um, was it just sort of in, uh, something that they did, like we're, we're going to just dump the car, it's not relevant to what we are doing, were they just not thinking about it? Like how does that look to you? Yeah, and, you know, I think it was an intentional dump site. I mean, let's just say for sake of argument, it was an accident, you know, you know, she swerved bad road conditions or an animal or whatnot. Uh, She was only a 15 minute walk back to Montgomery. Yeah. So she would have walked back. It's and or if she had picked a, uh, accepted a ride from somebody, it would have been somebody she, she, she knew it was dark out. So I do believe it was an intentional dump site. And when you talk about you know, dumping a vehicle, it doesn't mean necessarily mean concealing it, hiding it. Vehicles are hard, are hard to hide. You know, bodies are hard to hide. It is difficult to conceal a body and, you know, not have it found eventually and tied back to you. So vehicles are even more difficult. And there's only so many places you can hide a vehicle, you know, deep water, which there was none around, um, or forested area. Uh, But the, the big thing here with dumping this vehicle is that it was away from Montgomery. You know, all the people were in Montgomery, were around the Black Lantern Inn. That's where the human surveillance was going to happen. All you need to do is get that vehicle just away from that area, and now you've concealed the vehicle. So distance in itself is a form of concealment. You know, some of us, you know, some, um, I won't say some of us, but some uh, murderers, they'll you know, commit a murder and they'll hide the body. They'll bury it deep and they'll bury it, you know, a hundred yards from their home. Right. That's to conceal the body. So law enforcement can't find it and then tie it back to them. Other individuals, rather than hiding the body and burying it deep, they'll drive 50 kilometers and just chuck it in a ditch. Psychologically, it's the same thing. They're using distance instead of concealment. So in this case, I, I believe that it was an intentional dump site for the vehicle, just getting it away from people in Montgomery. 
Yeah, that's really uh, that's a really good point. And it ties into the second point that you had sent us where you said the events of the night started either inside or outside the Black Lantern Inn. Uh, and you mentioned it before that Brianna's schedule is a bit too unpredictable to plan otherwise. That's really interesting. We don't really talk a lot about what happened inside the Black Lantern Inn. Yeah, I, I mean, that came to that conclusion just based off of her schedule. And that's a time thing, a temporal element is that, you know, she had just started working there. So not a lot of people knew uh, her schedule was, you know, sporadic. She really didn't know what time she was going to get off based on what time they were done at the end of the night, uh, based on what time the kitchen was closing. So, you know, she likely didn't know when she was getting off. I mean, it could have been, they could have said two hours before uh, her shift ended. Oh, you're going to leave at this time. Or they could have been five minutes before. We don't really know. But either way, she would have found out at the Black Lantern Inn. So whatever events unfolded, there's a, there's a, you know, they potentially, there's a good possibility that they unfolded starting inside the Black Lantern Inn from when she found out she was getting off. When I say it might have started inside the Black Lantern Inn, it doesn't necessarily mean it was somebody in the Black Lantern Inn, a fellow worker or a regular patron. It doesn't, it could just be that that's when she made a phone call to somebody letting them know that she was going to be off in 15 minutes. So, uh, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that the, the events based on her schedule uh, would have likely started to begin inside the restaurant. Jeez. So yeah, I, I like your point about if, if this was some kind of accident that Brianna had just gotten into, why wouldn't she have gone back to the black lantern? Yeah. It was like a mile down the road, but that's, uh, that's doable um, if you're in a dire situation. Uh, obviously, with her car being uh, hung up on the house like that, it's kind of hard to picture how that was just a um, like a flat tire or something like that. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's either either a dump site or an abduction site. Well, you couple that in with the door being left open. She clearly didn't get out of her car to walk back to the Black Lantern and get picked up on the road uh, because why would she forget to shut her door? You, you know, if she's if she's leaving her car, we see this uh, in other cases, uh, the, the things that are left inside the car, and the car is typically locked for argument's sake. If she swerved to miss an animal on the road, like you said, spun around, got hung up in the back of the, on the side of the house, her door's open. That means she just basically got out and ran back without thinking. So uh, I, I don't think that that would be the case. So what does the door being open suggest to you? I completely agree with you in that if you are going to, if you do get in an accident and you are going to walk back somewhere, you know what? I mean, there were neighbors, there were different houses around there, but she, you know, she likely would have walked back to the Black Lantern Inn because it is only 15 minutes. If it was an hour, maybe she would have gone to one of the houses for help. Uh, and as you just mentioned, if you are going to walk back, she would have taken the keys because the keys were missing and she would have shut the doors, turn off the lights at least. Uh, you know, you wouldn't leave the doors open if you're just going to walk back and get some help. In terms of whether it's an abduction site or a dump site, she could have still been there even if it was a vehicle dump site, right? So if the events began at the Black Lantern Inn, either inside or outside, somebody met her outside the Black Lantern Inn, went with her in her vehicle, even once the offender enters the vehicle with the victim it doesn't that's not the necessarily the abduction site 
It's all what, what is uh, the scenario at that moment? I'll give you an example. Ivan Milat, he's an Australian serial killer. You know, he has seven known victims, uh, kind of from the, the late 80s to early 90s. And he was known as the backpacker killer. So he, pitched, he picked up hitchhikers. And his whole ruse was picked up a hitchhiker, drove them in the direction they were going for about 100 kilometers, you know, 60 miles, and then abducted them and took them off into a forested area. He didn't decide the initial pickup was innocent. As far as the victim knew, it was an innocent pickup helping them out. The abduction decide happened once he drove off into the forested area. You know, for all we know, Ivan Malat could have picked up a number of hitchhikers and decided, you know what, I'm not going to abduct them and let them go. So kind of what I'm getting at here is if Brianna did meet somebody that night, we still don't know where the abduction happened. Was she thrown into the car at the Black Lantern and he drove, well, let's say he drove with her in her vehicle to the old Dutchburn house? Or did he drive there with her and then decide at that point to abduct her? But it doesn't look like, I mean, it, it just the state of the vehicle, it looks like there was some kind of urgency or uh, scramble at the old Dutchburn house, because if it was just simply dropping a vehicle off, then it probably wouldn't look like it did. So there was some kind of, um, you know, urgency or struggle there. So with all of these different factors to take into consideration, it's almost like you're going through a list that you're checking off uh, things that didn't happen in order to come to some sort of conclusion. And if she had met somebody at the Black Lantern, that might open up a lot of other possibilities that aren't there. Like, how did that person get to the Black Lantern? Did they get into the car with her? Did they drive her car? If they drove her car, where's that person's car now? Did someone else drive that car? So it almost seems like you're checking off these things because it's not realistic that... Uh, that would have happened at the Black Lantern, or it is realistic that it would have happened there because of other factors. But what does it tell you? You 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 wrote something interesting that it gives like a proximity of where the destination was or where the person of interest might live, where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, and the the person that you know, let's just assume for a moment she was abducted. the The person that took Brianna was likely local. You know, she's not going to call somebody from the next, someone from the next state isn't going to drive over to an unpredictable work shift and pick her up. Right. So this person's local. And, you know, in the, in what I sent you that I mentioned, they were likely five to 10 minutes away. That was making the assumption that she found out what time did she get off work around 11? Yeah, that sounds right. Around 11. So, you know, let's say she found out at 10 to 11, Brianna, you're off at 11. Okay, well, that, that, that allows her to make a phone call to somebody and let them know that she's off in 10 minutes. So that person would likely be 10 minutes away. We don't know exactly, we don't know what unfolded there. So, you know, that's not fact, but it just kind of, it puts a proximity in mind. And I, I also mentioned that whoever this is, you know, if they met her there, if they met her at the old Dutch burn, uh, burn house, for example, because uh, it might not have happened at, the lantern. I mean, she could have met somebody at the old Dutchburn house. And if she met someone there, they were coming from the West because, you know, she's not going to drive West to meet somebody that's coming from the East. It just doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. Uh, so they likely came from the West. And again, it depends. And you know what? The police would likely have her phone records. 
And I don't know, but maybe you two know, but I mean, did she make any phone calls near the end of her shift? And that would give you a proximity to how far away this person was. Well, according to the timeline that our uh, colleague, uh, Chief Lou Barry, put together on the night that she went missing on March 19th, she clocked out at 11.20 p.m. And she actually declined the offer to stay for a drink with her coworkers, uh, saying that she had to work uh, early the next morning. Uh, so that in itself is a little telling. Either she was lying about having to work early or something happened in the meantime where, uh, you know, because if she was meeting somebody, you know what I'm saying? Like if, if she declined that offer to stay late with, for a drink because she was working early, she was then accepting the offer from somebody else to go hang out uh, in in that direction towards the Dutch burn house, which came up. In the meantime, after she declined the offer to when she got in her car? It's all based on whether, to me, whether she made a phone call or not. If she made a phone call, then it's possible she met somebody at the old Dutch burn home. If she didn't make a phone call near the end of her shift, that person was at the Black Lantern Inn and accompanied her there, in my mind. Um, and in terms of, you know, turning down drinks, eh, I take that with a grain of salt because that's something that, that's something we've all done. You know, hey, Doug, do you want to come out tonight? No, I got to work tomorrow morning. I've just because, I, just because I don't, just because I don't want to go. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, that that's possible. But, but she did, she did have a second job that was at like a morning diner. So I believe that is uh confirmed that she did have a shift that next morning. Um, and I do think we would have known if it was a known lie at this point. Most likely. So whatever happened after she left work was something that was either important enough for her to, I guess, risk being tired the next morning for her shift or she was forced to do something in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and from, from the evidence that I, and I try, I try my best to only work in, in facts, what I know I'll make inferences, but uh, I try not to go off on, you know, on theories, but uh, from the, from the evidence that I see is that if there was no phone call made, the only individuals that knew that she was off work and leaving would be those people that were at the black lantern in inside or outside. Uh, and it, they may not even have been associated with the black lantern. They may have been sitting outside in a car, just waiting for her to get off work. Uh, that's possible too. Um, but you know, that here to me, that is the most likely scenario. If there was no phone call made, all right. And then you write here about you would like to see what the ground search uh, was, um, because you th do think it's possible that Brianna's body, um, if deceased, of course, is uh, within a kilometer of, uh, of where she went missing. I'm, I'm curious why you uh, came to that conclusion. I've seen a lot of poor ground searches conducted. Um, and most of them I see after the fact where they were conducted, how they were conducted. And let's just take Moore Murray, for example, you know, the night she went missing, the law enforcement and one of the neighbors, they searched to the West from what I read, from everything I read. Uh, but she was traveling to the East, Southeast. Uh, so it didn't really make sense in my mind that they were searching to the West. Uh, what would make sense was, you know, if there was a gas station a mile back, then absolutely search to the west but there wasn't so why were they searching to the west when she wanted to go to the east it just didn't make sense 
sorry, just to interject. In in Maury's case, there there was a gas station to the west um, from the way she was coming, and uh, and I believe the reason they didn't search east is because uh, one of the officers arriving at the scene had arrived from the east, and uh, I think that was the decision they made was like, oh, we probably would have saw her, or I would I would have saw her if uh, she was running on the road there. Okay, there you go. Uh, and, and you know what? That, it's 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 reasonable. Uh, I don't know. How, do you know how far the gas station was to the west? I think it's like one one point two. It's it's not. It's no more than a couple miles. The Swiftwater uh, way station. Oh, it might not even be a mile. It's maybe a mile. Okay. Yeah, and if that was the reason for searching to the west, that makes sense. And you know, I understand. The officer saying he drove from the east, you know, but when you're driving along a dark road that has no lights, you know, how much can you see just driving? I, I don't know. I still would have done a search to the east. I would have done a search with the, with, the, with the accident being the epicenter and kind of going out from there all directions. With Brianna, I'm not sure how the search was conducted. Was it only done on the south side of the road in the field? Because I saw, I read that they searched the field near the barn. Did they search the other side of the road? Uh, did they search back to the Black Lantern Inn? I just have, I, I have, I have no idea where they searched. So I would like to see where they searched. Um, the reason I say a one kilometer, if her body is there, and if it wasn't, if it was also a body deposition site and not just a vehicle dump site, then carrying a carrying a, a body is moving moving a human is a lot easier if they're alive. You know, but are they going to take her way off into the bush a, mi- a kilometer? Well, I put a, did I put a kilometer or a mile? I kilometer because I'm Canadian, right? Uh, so let's just say a mile. Are they going to walk with her more than a mile off into the bush to assault to assault her, uh, or are they going to take her a mile away? You know, if she's already deceased, unlikely. So that's why I say, if it is a body deposition site, she's likely within a mile radius from that site or 0. 0.6, 0. 0.6 miles for a kilometer. Yeah. Well, we, we do know that there was uh, some slow movement in the investigation right from the get go. Uh, they assume that the car was just a, a DUI that was uh, ditched or got into an accident and the person left. And it was actually through a series of sort of uh, serendipitous moments that Bruce and his wife and uh, Brianna's mother even, uh, came in contact with the officer that uh, impounded the car in the first place. And it wasn't until uh, I believe March 26th where a search was actually done, where they had a, uh, a helicopter there, national guard helicopter, and they had the canine units there. And I think the next day the Vermont state police were questioning the employees of the black lantern. So what are we talking uh, a matter of like seven days, eight days at that point? Um, so seven days, so there's like a week goes by before any search is actually conducted. So what does that tell you? You know, someone could go back there and potentially move a body or cover up some some evidence. Yeah, it's definitely plausible. And, you know, when incidents like this happen, uh, you know, when with a vehicle, for example, it's it's tough to say, well, with any missing person, it's tough to say when the missing person investigation will actually start because the person has to be noticed to be missing, you know, and there has to be some kind of uh, search done amongst her family, their family, their friends, 
uh, before you can kind of come to the conclusion that, hey, this person's missing and we should report this to police. So, I mean, it could be one hour with a child or it could be seven days with an adult. It's tough to say. I mean, it could be a month with somebody who lives alone and that's 80 years old, lives alone and doesn't really know anybody. You know, in Brianna's case, I don't, I, in any case, when it comes to a vehicle, I don't fault uh, law enforcement for not starting a search right away because every day, every hour, every minute somewhere, there's a vehicle found in some kind of accident that's been left there. You know, whether it hit a deer, hit a tree, hit a barn, ran off in a snowbank, whatever it may be, there's vehicles and people call taxis, call friends, they leave, they get out of there, they come back later and get it. So, you know, they... They can't just find, law enforcement can't just find, for every vehicle they find, they can't call in to search and rescue, National Guard, whoever, to do a big search. So I don't fault them for not starting the search right away. Uh, it would all depend on, you know, when she was discovered missing and then how far after that point the search was conducted. You made an interesting point here about uh, both doors in uh, Brianna's car being allegedly left open. And uh, that being in conjunction with the keys missing is a very important detail. Can you uh, go into that a little bit? Sure. The keys missing is, for me, is significant uh, in that there's a reason the keys were missing. You know, they were used to drive the car there. So it's not just like, you know, they were, I mean, I can understand her you know, something in her purse is missing because she grabbed a purse. Oh, well, we don't see her ID. Well, it could have just been in the purse and it's missing. It wasn't taken intentionally. The purse was taken and the ID went with it, for example. But the keys were used to drive the car there. And I know there was discussion that it is possible that the vehicle, it was an older model vehicle that could have been driven without keys. And that is possible. Uh, but I'm just going on the assumption that there were keys at this point. Uh, and for the keys to go missing, you know, the car was driven there with those keys and the individual driving got out and took the keys with them. And why did they do that? You know, if they were just dropping the car there and then getting in another vehicle or walking away and it wasn't, there was nothing, there was no malicious activity taking place, they probably wouldn't have taken the keys. So you know, in my mind, I kind of see two scenarios. I see one, they took the keys because, you know, they thought there might be DNA on the keys or two, they needed the keys for some other purpose. Uh, and as I mentioned that, you know, it could have been, there was a house key on those keys. There was a key to something else that they needed. So they might've taken them for that reason. But I do think taking the keys was significant, you know, and I mean, they could have just taken them and chucked them off into the bush too, to get them away from somebody. But for some reason, they were removed from the car. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, too, that Bree's car could actually be started without the keys, um, I, which I don't know if you you came across that in your research. And I think I, I apologize if we forgot to mention that. Um, but uh, but I think it was one of those cars that that, that was able to uh, happen in. Yeah, no, I just I did hear that on uh, one of your um, on one of your episodes. Uh, uh, I just. I didn't read it anywhere. I just heard it on one of the episodes. And, uh, and if, if that's the case, then, you know, then the keys aren't, aren't a factor, you know? So it, it all depends on whether, I mean, I, I've, I've known people, I knew somebody back in the day whose car did start without keys, 
but they still used keys. So it's just tough to say in that respect. Well, I mean, it's interesting to to uh, work it around in your head and, and play out the scenario because if she didn't, if she wasn't using her keys to start the car, then her keys would be on her person, like either in a in a bag or or in a pocket or something, right? Unless she didn't need keys for anything, you know, maybe she didn't need keys to everything was unlocked. She could go back and uh, and just walk right into uh, wherever she was staying. But that's that seems a little bit uh, too chancy. Like I would probably just take keys anyway, just in case. And the car was not running when people found it, right? So at some point that car was turned off, correct? Or it went off, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure that, that I ever heard that or we ever thought to ask that question, whether it just went off naturally or f- someone actually turned it off. Right. So if it, if it goes off naturally, that would be because it, it would run out of gas or something um, mechanical would malfunction and it would it would go off. But the key position would still be on and... I think that is very telling. Like that would suggest she was taken from the car or stepped away from the car while it was running. What, why would someone do that? You know, a couple of reasons she was forced to, or she was just backed into the barn back. I mean, the side of the house backed into that. And maybe she exited the vehicle to check, to see how badly she was hung up in the house. And then she lost her necklace outside the car too. Then uh, just accidentally, I guess, sl- add that slipped factor off. into it, right? Or, or maybe that was on the car seat, you know, and she got out and it fell off. Uh, it's highly doubtful. Yeah, but there was apparently a bunch of stuff in the car. Um, there, you know, a lot of uh, random objects, especially in the back. So, I think it's important to think about, and I never, you know, just like having someone from this point of view come in and, and bring up these topics is, is really important because I think it does say a lot. If someone took her, are they not reaching in to turn that car off or are they, are they, are they reaching in to turn the car off or aren't they? If someone did take her. I I would say, and just, just based on the lights having been left on and the car door, at least one of the car doors being open, that um, the car was probably on when when uh, everyone fled the scene or left the scene. At least the battery was still on because the lights were on. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's why I go into the doors and the lights is that, and the lights is that you know, we we don't know how the vehicle ended up there, but we do know how it was left, uh, and that's you know, and that's based off of uh, the the ex-boyfriend's, you know, uh, account of how he found the vehicle. Uh, and he said he found the vehicle with the lights on and the doors open. Um, and if that's the case, you know, it, it, that gives me a, uh, that's kind of a, it shows me a time element. It shows me that somebody left that site in a hurry without thinking, stopping to think to, or having a reason to take the time to shut the doors and and turn off the lights so i mean for me the way the vehicle was left and again we're going on you know a witness account of how it was left but that is more telling for me than than how the vehicle ended up there because there's just too many ways that vehicle could have ended up that way no matter how far you run from them childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you so is true of elite scuba diver veronica west was about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. 
There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Right, and uh, and James, uh, Brianna's ex-boyfriend, uh, his, his sort of statements about seeing the car have kind of changed over the years and uh and we we have uh talked about this um we've also talked about that he is uh now recently deceased as of um a year or two ago he he was in a car accident and uh and died and um but yeah he never reported uh seeing Brianna's car until years later and then he later says that him and another friend of his they saw Brianna's car doors open, lights on, um, and that it was around 2.30 a.m. Lights on, doors open. He changed his story at one point. I think it was 4.30, and then it was 2.30. Uh, so, yeah, there's some some suspicion there. And, and obviously, touching the doors or touching the car, that kind of puts your, your own uh, DNA on the car, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, for... I, I think I had, I had just... Uh, read that it was it was just James himself. I didn't know he had a uh, a friend traveling with him. Sorry about that to interrupt. Just for the sake of clarity, you might be right. Um, I, he was with his friend at certain point that night. I'm not sure if that friend was with him at the car or not. Okay, 
All right. Well, let's just, uh, you know, assume for the moment it was just James. Uh, you know, for me, there are, there are two key people in this whole, in this whole uh, event uh, surrounding Brianna Maitland. And that's James is the first one. You know, he's, he's your only witness. He's your only witness post event. He noticed the doors open, the lights on, and I want to make it clear. I, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm not naming any persons of interest or anything like that. I'm just saying what I see. Uh, you know, he, he came across his vehicle. It's an ex-girlfriend. It's somebody he used to care about. I'm not sure if he still did, but it's somebody he used to care about. The vehicles crashed into a barn. The, there's stuff scattered around. The doors are open. The lights are on. Who knows if the gas is running or not. And, and he doesn't think to tell somebody, you know, he doesn't think to go directly to somebody that night and say, I found Brianna's car here. Is she okay? You know, that is, that worries me. And that makes me question things. There's nobody that would find a car like that and, and just leave it. Even if I found a, a random car in that kind of situation, I would probably call the police. You know, I'm not saying it's impossible. We all, there's people do weird things, crazy things. We all know that, but it is very unlikely, especially for somebody who once cared about this girl. Uh, and, you know, like you said, touching the car, turning the lights off, puts the doors, turning the lights off in the car, puts his DNA inside and outside the vehicle. Uh, so now there's a reason for it to be there. The other person that's important here is the the lady, and I think she was a, a co-owner of the Black Lantern that saw Brianna leave. Yeah, she saw her um, get into her car, correct? Or at least making her way to her car. Okay, so for me, she's the other she's the other person number two. She's the other important person here because she was pre-event. So you have pre-event and you have post-event. We don't have anything. Uh, you know, in the middle while the event is taking place. So for the pre-event details, she's your most important witness. And all I've ever seen from her is I saw Brianna get in her car. What else? Did you see her talking to somebody before she got in her car? Did you see another car drive out after her? You know, and maybe, maybe all she saw was her get in her car, but that's, that's all I've ever seen. And, you know, as soon as, just because you see somebody get in their car doesn't mean that they drove to that place alone or weren't followed because as soon as that person is out of sight, then the whole event starts over. You know, you can, you only know she saw Brianna get in that car and drive off. As soon as she's out of sight, anything could have happened from that point on. It doesn't mean it waited to the Dutch burn house to happen. Right. So I think she's another, you know, a key witness in this, in all of this. And it would be interesting to see if she had any more details and what they were. Yeah. It's also interesting to understand the uh, distance between where she saw Brianna get in her car and where she was looking from. Yeah. Was it, was it 30 feet? Was it a hundred feet? Where, where was Brianna parked? And, you know, how long was she paying attention to, to that whole thing? I, I know uh, just working in a restaurant in New Hampshire, we would always be instructed to watch the 
our coworkers walk out to the car, mostly because like the parking lot was a little bit further away than you'd expect uh, for the employees. And, and any time an employee was leaving, especially uh, after the restaurant had officially closed, we would either walk out with them or we would make sure somebody was watching them. It was just something that most restaurants would do because you're leaving with cash on you uh, most of the time. And it, it, we were in the middle of New Hampshire too, so it wasn't like uh, a high crime area. It was just to be safe, and it's like a buddy system. So I wonder how closely she was actually watching her. Was she assigned to watch her? Like, okay, I'll watch you go to your car. Make sure you get in. I, I think that was probably the case. Yeah, and I, those are all very good points. And you know, I hope that is the case because I mean, and it's also interesting to know the environment of that parking lot. You mentioned that it was a little further away from the Black Lantern Inn. Was there a light? You know, and and then what did she see? Did she look out and just see the door close on Brianna's car and it drive away? And then she said she saw Brianna get in the car. So it would it would be interesting to know that all the details you just mentioned, plus, you know, more specific what she exactly saw. Uh, you you also say that the lime is not random. You, you don't think the lime that was found on her car is random. Uh, what brought you to that conclusion? I would, I would want to know where the vehicle was parked at the Black Lantern. That's what would be important in, in, in terms of the lime. The lime not being random, it is possible a lime fell on the back of her, on the trunk. It was relatively cold, you know, it froze, and it was still on there after she crashed at the old Dutchburn barn. Um, would a lime stay frozen even after driving? And then after hitting the old Dutchburn barn, it doesn't fly off. Could it still be there? Again, it's possible. What I would like to know is where the vehicle was parked at the Black Lantern Inn. If it was parked near the dumpster, you know, I, I, mean, I remember in one, of, uh, in one of the episodes, I think Lance, you mentioned, you know, you had worked previously in a bartending experience or serving experience and you would go out and people would throw stuff and maybe a line would just land on before it went in the dumpster into the car on the hood of the, on the trunk of the car. I think you mentioned something to that respect, you know, and that's possible. It's a possible scenario, but if the vehicle was parked away from the black lantern away from the dumpster, it means somebody was having a drink near the trunk of her car and was her car parked near other cars or was it parked off by itself? So the spatial element here in terms of where she was parked is important. It's not just she was in a parking lot behind the restaurant and a lime could have landed on a car. Well, was she near other cars? Was she near the dumpster? Was she near the restaurant? I mean, there's, there's so many more details here that matter. And if she was off by, if her vehicle was off by herself and somebody was intentionally standing in that spot to have a drink, left their lime on the vehicle, depending on where her vehicle was parked, I, I don't think it was random. I think I'm going to agree with that, uh, that, it, that it wasn't random, but connected to the actual uh, events that took place at the Dutchburn, I'm not sure about. Because I can, I can absolutely, I think I might have said this before, I can absolutely see somebody having a conversation with Brianna, maybe a waiter or a waitress who, you know, they have, they have aprons and they have pockets in their aprons. And when you're clearing off a table, you just kind of put stuff in those pockets. Maybe, maybe the person's talking and they're like, oh, I had this, you know, I, oh, I forgot to dump this lime. This lime was in my pocket and just kind of puts it there now. But that means someone was having a conversation with Brianna at her car. Who's this person and what did they see? 
Absolutely. And it could, it could have been a friendly coworker that walked her to her vehicle. As you mentioned, it could have been a regular patron that walked her to a vehicle that knew her. I mean, it, it, there's any number of scenarios there. I'm not saying what happened there is definitively related to what happened at the Dutch burn, but it's still interesting to follow up on and how that ended up there. Uh, you know, and it's, I don't think they kept the line. Nobody kept the line, did they? It wasn't put into evidence. Not that we know of, but that's a great point. Yeah, it could have DNA on it. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. And also a great point that it didn't fly off the car when that car went into the back of or the side of the house. I mean, how how cold? Do you know how cold it was that night? I can't remember. I think I looked it up, but I think it was like in the high 20s, 30s, something like that. So just below freezing. Just probably just around freezing. Yeah, you take take a look on that. But I mean, how long does a lime? And I mean, you got to remember, a lime is also acidic. It's going to take a little longer to freeze. So it feels weird when we're getting into the minutia of a lime because now I'm thinking like if it was in an alcoholic drink, it would have alcohol on it. That would take a little longer for it to actually freeze. You know, I mean, is is it even important? But it kind of is when we when you're going back to why it was even there in the first place. Who had it? Was there DNA on it? Like, this is important stuff. Yeah, it looks like about an average of 34 that day. Uh, wind speed, 20 to 30 miles per hour at the most, at the maximum. Right, so right around the freezing. You also write, uh, another vehicle at the site would not leave evidence if it did not leave the pavement. So what does that tell you? There's no signs of any tire tracks or skid marks or a second vehicle either wasn't there or if it was there, it didn't leave in uh, any degree of haste. Yeah. If, you know, I had, I sort of touched on it earlier, but I mean, that's it. If, if another vehicle did meet them, there, if another vehicle was parked there, it would have been likely parked off the road. If it was there before Brianna's vehicle showed up, it likely would have been parked off the road and you know depending on the ground and how uh you know frozen or saturated it was or how quickly it drove off it may or may not have let it left any marks um if a vehicle showed up there and never left the pavement it's only going to leave tire marks if it if it turned quickly or stopped or accelerated or accelerated quickly uh and you know when that happens if there are tire tracks or tread marks then you know police forensics are pretty good and pulling those tread marks up. Uh, so it, I think I want to believe that, you know, that, that the law enforcement would have been able to figure out if another vehicle was there. Uh, and even if there was multiple tire tracks over the last month at that location, well, you pulled them all up. So I would like to think that if there were other tread marks there, um, that, that law enforcement would have found them. So you know, it, it just, it kind of tells me that if there was another vehicle there, they, it, it doesn't appear that it left any evidence from, from what the, you know, the law enforcement and the reports show me. With all of your conclusions here, there's always an element of the unknown because we don't know where Brianna is and no one's ever come forward to give any sort of definitive proof of, of uh, where she is or, or what happened that night. Um, where would you go from here with, with all of the points you've made and all the questions you have? Uh, what's your next step? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I consult, you know, assist on an investigation, I, I just like to give 
exactly what I've done here with the two of you. Different pieces of information. Um, and, you know, there's always stuff that I don't know um, that law enforcement doesn't uh, give out. Whether I work with law enforcement, a cold case institute, um, you know, consultants, private investigators, there's always information I don't get. And that's fine. Uh, I like to give them pieces of information and that then place it in to the puzzle they already have going. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the best way to do it. I don't like to, you know, make theories because I never have the complete picture. So it's tough to make a theory. I never have all the information. Uh, but where I would say to go from here is her phone records from when she was at work, figuring out what time she was getting off. If she didn't phone anybody, that means that person was, you know, it, it was likely at the Black Lantern Inn. Who was at the Black Lantern Inn? And I don't see a lot of, I mean, I'm sure police interviewed people and, and kind of ruled people out, but everybody that was there, inside or outside, discussing with the, with the lady that saw Brianna leave, you know, following up on the line, if there's anything there left to follow up on, all those little details of, you know, where the car was parked, because, you know, just those little details can change your theory around from the line being missing the dumpster to, okay, now the lime's important. So I, I would just take these little, take these little discussion, take all these discussion points that we've talked about here and the private investigators and law enforcement that are working on the case, piece them in, see if they fit. If they don't, discard them. If they fit and it creates a new lead, follow up on that lead. Because that's all I'm trying to do is, is provide leads. Thank you.